Well, I think I've told you about the most notorious conman of the late 1960s, Frank Abagnale Jr. He was born in 1948, and uh, he just became a, a master at deception. And he eventually spent over $2.3 million, uh, $2.5 million in uh, fraudulent checks that he managed to create. He also practiced medicine. Um, he practiced law in Louisiana. He lectured at a university, and uh, he flew over one million miles to 26 different countries posing as an airline pilot. And all the while, he was being chased down by an FBI agent, Joe Shea, who basically made this his mission in life, was to figure out how uh, Abagnale was doing these things and then cornering him and, and catching him. At one point, he, he was arrested and put into jail, but... Um, he managed to convince the warden that he was actually an undercover prison inspector. And so he got better uh, treatment and better food and better living conditions and at one point um, was allowed to leave the prison to go and meet um, somebody and then that's how he escaped, which drove uh, Joe Shea crazy because he had managed to catch him the first time. Well, eventually he, he, he catches him and um, he goes to, to jail, uh, sp spends a lot of time in jail, but is released on condition that he works with the FBI. And so Joe Shea and Frank Abagnale actually became partners um, as they, he worked with the FBI to prevent further fraud. And during this time, um, Shea was plagued by this one detail that he could never figure out. He figured out how he made the checks. Uh, he figured out how he got out of prison. He figured out how he practiced law, how he flew as an airline pilot. Uh, I mean, how he practiced medicine. But he never figured out how he managed to qualify to be a lawyer. Now, in Louisiana, you don't actually have to go to law school. You can become a, a lawyer and be admitted to the bar if you pass the bar exam. The thing is, nobody can pass the bar exam without going to law school because of the volume of material that a person would have to know and learn. And there's really no way to cheat the system. There's no way to bring any information in. It's just, it's just an immense amount of knowledge a person needs to have. And so Shea eventually um, actually pressed charges against the Louisiana bar examiners saying that they must have helped him pass the exam because there was no other way to cheat. The, the, the exam was cheat-proof. And so it must be them, but there was not a shred of evidence to prove that, so eventually that case was dropped. And only once they became partners and then friends did he, uh, did Abagnale offer that information when Shea asked him, so how did you, how did you cheat your way through the Louisiana bar exam? And he said that was the one thing he didn't fake, that he actually studied and passed the bar exam. He had to take it three times, and each time uh, he failed, he learned from his mistakes, and he went and studied harder, and he just learned all that material and actually became a qualified lawyer because of that. And the reason this never occurred to Shea is because he just assumed that the man was a con artist, and so there's no way that he could ever have done anything that impressive legitimately. Well, we see people making the same mistake tonight, but they're making this mistake with Jesus. So turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, where the, these people see an amazing display of Christ's power, and yet it doesn't occur to them that it could be legitimate because they've already made up their minds about him. Now, you'll remember the context. We've learned a lot from the Lord's Prayer um, last week, we looked at uh, a parable that Jesus teaches in order to instill in us the idea that we need to have 
confidence, um, tenacity, perseverance, boldness, audacity. In fact, we looked at the word chutzpah. You know, you have to have chutzpah when you come to God in prayer and that you must demand this. Um, if you have needs and they're urgent and you believe in them, that you would pray in such a way as this man in the parable. And so this is what we looked at last week. Um, and one of the things that we learned about the, the prayer was may thy kingdom come, and from Matthew's version as well, may thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we looked at what that meant to be the kingdom and the kingdom coming and how we should pray. But there may be this lingering question. Why do we need to pray for, for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Why isn't it being done? And one of the reasons is because there's opposition to the kingdom. And that's what we're going to see tonight. So after this teaching on the prayer and the audacity in prayer, we now get to this event that happens that Luke puts here to show us that there was opposition to the kingdom. I'll pick it up in verse 14. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out the demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So we're going to just read until there tonight. We're not even going to get entirely that far. Um, we're going to kind of split this up into two messages because there's some really interesting things in here. So we're going to look at three scenes of this miracle so we'll understand who Jesus is. Three scenes. The plight of the possessed man, the power of the Christ, and the purpose of the sign. So firstly, in the first scene, we see the plight of the possessed man. It starts off, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And I love how Luke just throws that in there. It's almost like this is now so commonplace that this is just one of the things Jesus was doing. What was Jesus doing? Well, he was busy casting out a demon. But this is a really impressive miracle. This would be an incredibly impressive miracle. Even if you had seen it before, it explains why it says that the people marveled. Uh, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But here we have this man, this, this possessed man. He's in a wretched state. He, his plight is really unenviable. He's possessed. He is mute, meaning that he, he cannot speak. And he's lost. He's an unbeliever. We know that because he, he has a demon in him. And from Jesus' teaching later, which we'll look at next week, that even having the demon taken out isn't what saves you. So possession here, let's look at this first part of his malady. Possession, we've talked about this in the past because we've seen it in Luke, but in case you haven't been with us in Luke, possession is when a spirit occupies um, a human body. 
It can actually be an animal body too. We see Jesus cast demons into pigs at one stage and they take control of the pigs. So possession is when a spirit gets into a body and takes control of its motor functions. And we see this in a number of places in the New Testament. It seems to be probably a little bit more commonplace there than it is today. Um, it's kind of like a hand in a puppet. You know, this, your, your body is just a material, um, you could call it a machine, it is being governed and animated by the life force that God puts in you, which we call a soul. So your soul, your spirit, is what animates your body. When you die, all that happens is your spirit and your body separate, and then this, this lifeless machine can no longer function, and so it just starts decaying. But as long as you've got life in you, you can move around, you can talk, and you can experience things. And what happens with possession is another spirit, another soul, you might call it, comes in and occupies the same space. And this manifests in many different ways. In the scriptures themselves, we see this manifesting by people having altered voices. They have different voice. They have superhuman strengths. Um, one case in Acts 16, there's a power of prediction of the future. Antisocial behavior is common. Self-mutilation, especially cutting. Exhibitionism. Um, reclusiveness. Violent aggression. And just to note, these behaviors are not always linked to demonism. But they can be. I think today a lot of us, we don't even think about that. You know, if a person is uh, self-mutilating or they're an exhibitionist, you know, a flasher, or they've got this pathological um, sociopath-type behavior, we just think, oh, it must be something mental. It must be something mental. Well, it, it may be, but or it may also be something very spiritual. That there may be a demon involved. And so the, the accounts in Scripture that talk about demons and what they do it's interesting to me that there's no instruction on what to do if you meet a person that's possessed by a demon. You think if this was happening all the time, there would be like a chapter in the Bible on, okay, so if you ever meet somebody with a demon, this is what you do. And in some churches, in some circles, it's kind of fashionable to teach people what to do to cast out demons if there's something wrong. You know, if there's a leaky roof, there must be a demon of distraction or we're going to bind that demon or whatever. Um, uh, there's no instruction of that at all in the scriptures. In fact, there's only one chapter in the Bible that tells Christians what to do about spiritual warfare, and that is Ephesians chapter 6. You can go read that on your own time. It's the, the, the section about putting on the armor of God, you know, having faith, being ready with the gospel. The, the, there's no instruction on holy water or uh, diagrams you have to draw or uh, formulas that you have to use. There's no such thing as binding a demon or casting out a demon. There's no instruction on how to do that. Now, we do see some examples of people who were given that authority in Scripture. And the reason we're given those examples is just so that we know that they're there. We know that, that these demons are functioning. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. God includes all of this here so that we know how Satan operates. But we mustn't now jump to the conclusion that we have responsibilities that we're not told anywhere in Scripture what to do about it. But we do know that Satan has an army of meddlers, saboteurs, that interfere with society, with culture, with politics perhaps, certainly with churches. Paul called his opposition a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan that was sent to harass him. 
The application for us at this point, when we look at the plight of the possessed man, is simply don't get so fascinated by the darkness of the demons that you ignore the light of Christ. That's the point of the story. The point isn't to get stopped with, ooh, there was a man that was possessed by a demon, and he made this guy mute. The demon made this man mute. Let's talk about demons for a whole sermon. Um, the fact that he was mute shows that the, it's one of the things that the demon was doing, was able to do. Yes, we see people with altered voices. We see people with superhuman strength. We see people being thrown into fires. Uh, we see people breaking shackles and cutting themselves. And one of, the, one of the symptoms here of having a demon is that the demon just took control of the man's larynx, his vocal cords, so that he just couldn't speak. I don't know if you've ever seen people who seem, let's put it this way, one of the symptoms of certain types of what we would call mental illness is an inability to articulate yourself, a type of aphasia where, um, you know, in Los Angeles, if you go walking around, you, you want to look for homeless people, you just go anywhere in L.A. now. But when we lived there, there was a little section, and under a bridge, sometimes there'd be homeless people, and if you walk past them, you would see, sometimes there'd be a guy just stuck in a corner, and he'd just be going, like, mm, he's trying to talk to you, but he's like, mm, 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 you know, it's like you can't get the words out. It's very disturbing to see a person who, who's bound, that they can't, they can't articulate what's on their mind, and that's what happened here. But the point of this tragedy in this man's life, as Luke is presenting it, is that we're going to see what this tells us about Jesus. So this brings us to the second point. We see the plight of the possessed man. He's really hopeless. There's nothing he can do about this. We don't know how he came in that position, but here's the solution. The power of the Christ. Verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute, and when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. And the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Well, let's start with the fact that the people marveled. Of course they marveled. This is marvelous. This is an astonishing event. Even if you've now seen these types of miracles before, and, and a lot of these people had seen these multiple times, it's still always marvelous. I mean, you even see with fireworks. We've all seen fireworks before, and yet every year you see the firework and you have people go, ooh, ah. It's like, well, you know what the firework is. There's no mystery involved, but there's just something, when you see something that's, that's spectacular, it moves you. And that's what this word means, to marvel at it. They see the spectacular thing. They see basically what they're viewing is here's a man with some sort of supernatural malady, this other, this demon in him. You'd be afraid of that. You'd be uh, fearful. You'd be pitif you know, pitying the man. And then Jesus walks up and just casts the demon out. And suddenly the man starts speaking. This man who was like, woo, woo, suddenly he's like, wow, and now I can talk. And, and this is astonishing, and the people are marveling. But in that moment, they're now faced with a decision they have to make. Because they've just seen something that cannot be explained by normal explanations. Something supernatural has happened. Something powerful has happened. So what do you do with this information? And whenever we encounter something that is extraordinary, something that's out of the ordinary understanding... We are forced, and we naturally do as humans, we're forced to come up with theories. Because we don't know what happened, but we can't just ignore it. There must be a solution. There must be a reason. So now, you know, because it's an election year, there's all this talk about these uh, 
what do they call them now, uh, UAPs, have you heard of that? Unexplained aerial phenomena. They used to be called UFOs, but now everybody thinks that people who saw UFOs, well, they're dumb, but now if you see a UAP, well, that's different. Now we're going to have a Congress hearing about that, and there was like an actual hearing in Congress with these witnesses, people talking about seeing UFOs, basically. You know, we just can't explain what's happening in the sky, but somebody has to explain it. And so one of the major ruling theories at the moment is that it's aliens. Yeah, there you go. We've got proof of aliens. Well, other people are saying, no, it's the government. The government has this technology that they just don't want people to know about, so they're hiding it. Other people say, well, I work in the government, and I'm the guy that has all the clearance, and I'm telling you, we've never seen anything like it. Well, then my theory is it must be the Russians. No, they can't get their act together. It's the North Koreans. That's why they don't have electricity there, so no one can see what they're doing. But they're building these things. You know, everyone's got these weird theories. At least the theory must be that the, the witnesses are lying, or that they were hallucinating, but they're all still the same thing. We don't know. But everyone needs to come up with some sort of explanation for what happened. And so here in verse 15, some of them, they're all marveling. Okay, we just saw this supernatural thing. Some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul. There's a theory. We, we, we clearly believe that there's a supernatural element to what's going on. We just witnessed that. How did Jesus get control of the demon? I don't have control of a demon. Do you have control of a demon? Nobody we know has control of a demon. This guy does. There must be an explanation. I know he works for the demons. There you go. He's doing this by the power of Satan. The word Beelzebul, maybe you remember William Golding's novel, Lord of the Flies. That's what Beelzebul means. It comes from the onomatopoeia for a fly. Flies go, bzz, bzz, bzz. so Beelzebul is the, he's the Lord of the Flies. It also became a euphemism for a dunghill, because that's where all the flies are. So he's the Lord of the Dung, you could say. And this was a kind of a nickname, sort of a slang term that the Jews used to refer to Satan. He was Lord of the Flies. And so here, Jesus is casting out demons by the power of the Lord of the Flies, Beelzebul. Now, the religious system of the day, we've already seen, was at odds with Jesus. They didn't like what he was claiming. He was claiming something that just rubbed them the wrong way that he had this special connection to God, that he was made of the same nature of God in some way. He kept calling himself the son of God. And then when you argue with him, he does something that only God can do, like heal people, walk on water, turn water into wine. You know, and the word's getting around that he's doing this stuff. And, well, he can't be from God because one of the things that he did is he healed a person on a Sabbath. And we know that Sabbath's God's holy day where he doesn't like people working, so he wouldn't come down here and work on the Sabbath. So we've already decided that he can't be from God, but now he's doing this other thing that only God can do, so we've got to come up with a, a theory. The theory is that it's Satan. So verse 17, knowing their thoughts, I like that too. Jesus knows their thoughts. He's just another divine ability. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. He's reasoning with them. He's saying, okay, I hear your theory. 
but let's just look more closely at your theory. Let's poke a few holes in your theory. Are you sure that the best, the best uh, theory involved here for me being able to cast out a demon is that I must be working for the demons? That doesn't seem to make sense, right? Because if Satan is launching his kingdom up against God, probably what he's not going to do is empower one human to go around and just mess with his kingdom. And yet that's what you're saying is happening here. Objective reasoning would at least lead to the conclusion that Jesus, in what he's doing, is on God's side in some way. That he's a prophet or something. I mean, that's what an objective person would say, looking at the evidence. Jesus is doing the types of works that only God does. Consistently, it's all Jesus does. It's the types of works that God does. Jesus heals. Jesus provides for people, provides food. He teaches people about love and forgiveness and submission. And he casts out demons. Whose team is he on? This is the work of someone who's on God's side. This is not the work of a Satanist. And yet that's what you're concluding because that means your presupposition can still be right. You see how committed they are to their presupposition. They presuppose Jesus is not from God. He does all these works that only God does. And so the theory is now when he has supernatural power, well, he, he must be getting it from one of the places you get supernatural power from, God or Satan. It can't be God. You know why? Because we already decided that. So what's left? Satan. But they are being willfully ignorant. That's why in verse 15 they say they, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. This would be exactly like, and bear with me, let's see if I get this right, the New York Yankees versus the Red Sox, an ancient rivalry. I want you to think back to the glory days of the New York Yankees, where they really were the superior team. I mean, they had Babe Ruth, Joe DiMaggio, they got Yogi Berra, later they have Mickey Mantle, I mean, this, this is the team to beat. Now, imagine a, a rookie coming out of the, the minor league farm system, starts playing for the Red Sox, and he is batting better than Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Joe DiMaggio combined. And immediately, the, uh, the folks at Fenway get together, the executives of the Red Sox get together to decide what we're going to do about this rookie. And they conclude, instead of giving him a record contract and bringing them up so that they can beat the Yankees, they say, you know what? He's playing so well, he must be a Yankee. So we got to fire him because we don't want Yankees on our team. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, that's what these guys are doing. It's like, well, we've got God's team, we've got Satan's team, and this guy's beating Satan so well, he must work for Satan. We've got to fire him. I mean, here's a guy wearing a Red Sox uniform, and he's playing for the Red Sox, and he's beating the Yankees, and you conclude, no, he must be a secret Yankee. Let's fire him. That's what's going on here. It just doesn't make any sense, and Jesus points it out to them. You're not going to send your best guy to fight your other guys. And that's what you're saying... Satan's doing. Here the leaders of Judaism see a Jew casting a demon out of a Jew and they conclude he's not Jewish. He's a Satanist. 
This can only be explained by sinful, willful ignorance. A commitment to be against God's evidence, no matter what. Total depravity. That's what the doctrine of total depravity teaches. It teaches that every part of you, including your thinking, is tainted by sin. Enough that you cannot come to the right conclusions by yourself. That's what the, the doctrine of total depravity teaches. That a human being cannot reason rightly about spiritual things to come to the right conclusions without help from God. And here you see it in action. They are seeing something that is clearly obviously indisputable, undeniable evidence that Jesus is from God, and they've already crossed that possibility out, so they're left with, he must be a Satanist. Romans 1.18. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppressing the truth is when the truth's already come before you, but you push it down rather than dealing with it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, will give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That is a chilling evaluation of the human race. And without God's help, this is who we are. Futile in our thinking. Uh, Thomas Watson the Puritan says that sin makes us dim in the intellectual parts. <laughs> I like to say sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you look at the evidence that any objective person would be able to draw the right conclusion and you draw the long, wrong conclusion and you can't help yourself. Dim in the intellectual parts. One example of this we see today is when people find fossils. So what we know about fossils is fossils take two variables to form. They take time and pressure. If you have a little bit of time, you need a lot of pressure. If you have a little bit of pressure, you need a lot of time. So they find a fossil and they're like, oh, here's a creature that's been fossilized. So either it had an immense amount of pressure on it for 40 days and 40 nights, like a worldwide flood, or it had the pressure that we just have now, normal pressure, but for millions and millions of years. And since we know that there's no worldwide flood, because if there was, that means the Bible would be true and we already know that that's not the case, all we're left with is millions and millions and millions of years. All that that means is, whenever a scientist says millions of years, it means abracadabra, like Stuff we don't know, can't see, have never reproduced in a lab, have never seen, is not scientific by our definitions of science, but it's the only thing left because we've crossed out the Bible as an option. Presuppositions. It's 
So they miss the power of the Christ. And yet that's the purpose of the sign. This brings us to our third point. We see the plight of the possessed man and the power of the Christ as he frees him, but it doesn't have any effect on these people, and they miss the whole point. What is the point? The purpose of the sign, verse 20. Well, let me read verse 19. Again, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom your sons cast them out. Therefore, uh, sorry. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they, your sons, your offspring, will be your judges. But if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus is now furthering his argument with them. He's saying, if you are right, that any time somebody has power to cast out demons, it's from Satan, because you've ruled out the option that that person could be from God, then why are you being inconsistent? Because you don't say that about other Jews who claim to cast out demons. And so we, we know from New Testament history, people writing about this, that there were Jews who claimed to have the power to cast out demons. Um, they, would, they would call themselves exorcists. You've heard of that, right? An exorcist is a person who does some sort of ritual or has some sort of holy water or whatever it is, and then they free the person from the power of the demon, or at least they try to. We see an example of this in Acts chapter 19, when there were seven sons of a, a Jew named Sceva, and they all claimed to be exorcists. They were this, like, gang of exorcists, and if you have a demon problem, who are you going to call? You can call the Ghostbusters, right? And so they show up in town, they're like, oh, there's an actual demon. So a lot of, a lot of stuff people maybe fake demon stuff or pretend to demon stuff or sometimes demons played along with it so that these people thought they had power. But anyway, these guys roll into town and they try to help this guy and the, it doesn't go well for them. Go read Acts 19. He beats the snot out of them, strips them naked and kicks them into the street. Um, so don't, don't mess with demons. But there were these people who, who thought they were able to do this. And so he says, but you love it when a Jewish person comes along and says, hey, I know how to kick out a demon, but here I'm doing it and you're saying I must be from Satan. Why don't you say that for the other Jews who do this? So he's just kind of holding them to their own inconsistencies, kind of exposing that. But then he says this, because remember, the purpose of a miracle is to be a sign to indicate who Jesus is, to provide evidence to indicate to people that the claims Jesus have, has been making is consistent with his ability to do it. If he claims to be the Son of God and he can do the things that God does, that validates his claim. And they're just missing all of that. So he says this, verse 20, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now remember, two things going on here. In the meantime, you can turn to Exodus chapter 8 because I'm going to show you something really cool in Exodus chapter 8. So go there. But two things going on. The kingdom of God has come upon you. So we spoke about that, the kingdom of God, and how there's an already not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. Remember that? When Jesus came, he inaugurated the kingdom. There was a lot of things that from the kingdom of God that already are now in effect, like the spiritual aspect, how people can be saved. People can be set free from their sins. That's the spiritual aspect. Um, but eventually there will be a consummation, and there's parts of the kingdom that's not yet here. 
the, the, the ruling and reigning of Christ over his people here on earth, the, the reversal of the curse, the restoration of world peace and uh, peace with the animals and all those things that are prophesied in Scripture, right? So there's an already not yet. But what he's saying is that if, if this miracle is true and it's from God, not from Satan, then you're faced with this conclusion. The kingdom of God that has been prophesied in the Old Testament, the kingdom of heaven, it's here with me. I'm the one inaugurating it. I'm the one starting it. So what I wanted to show you in Exodus 8 is because Jesus uses very specific imagery here. Think about it. He doesn't say, if this miracle is true, if I actually am from God, if I'm doing this by the power of God instead of the power of Satan. He, he uses a phrase. If this is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom has come upon you. Okay? So he is alluding to something that the Jews who had the Old Testament memorized would know. And it's Exodus chapter 8. Let me read for you from verse 16. This is where Moses is told to go and speak to Pharaoh and he has to do certain miracles to prove to Pharaoh that he is uh, from God. But Pharaoh doesn't want to believe him, so he calls his magicians in. Remember that? He calls the magicians in and says, you do the same thing. So, you know, turn water into blood. The magicians do a little thing with their little, you know, strawberry Kool-Aid or whatever it is that they had that turns it into red. Aha, you see, my magicians can do the same thing. And then they, what about the staff? The staff turns into a snake. Ooh, and the magicians are like... Boom, boom, ah, I can do it too. And Moses is like, no, oh, nothing's working. Um, and the magicians are just, they're just having fun with this. They're just mimicking God's true miracle with some sort of illusion that's convincing the Pharaoh. And then this happens, Exodus eight sixteen. Then Yahweh said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff, struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. Think, think fleas. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. Interesting, huh? This is the phrase that Jesus is lifting when he's talking to these Jews that are rejecting his sign. The finger of God. So they would remember the story. This is the only time that's used. And they, they go and they think back and they're like, okay, there was a time when God was doing real miracles to prove that his man, his prophet was sent from him to warn these people about doom, to set his people free. And the miracles that they did, these magicians, siding with Satan, were able to mimic so they were doing something by the power of, you know, their magic arts. He was doing something legitimate from God. And so God steps it up 
and does something that they can't do, and they recognize this is, and what they call it, the finger of God. But by then it's too late. Now there's gnats everywhere, and yet Pharaoh didn't believe because his heart was hardened. So now go back. Go back to Luke. You see the parallel. This is exactly what's happening in Luke 11, verse 20, when Jesus says, but if it is by the power, by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Your sons are doing something that's faking what I'm actually doing. Your sons, the, the Jewish exorcists, like the Pharaoh's magicians, are mimicking my actual power. And now I'm doing something that you're marveling at because you've never seen it done like this before. A person who's actually mute is able to speak. And if this is done by the finger of God, which the magicians recognized, we're out of our league here. And if you would only recognize that you're out of your league here and that this is actually God's power, then you would have to come to the actual right conclusion, which is, I'm the Messiah. I'm the king. I'm the one that's bringing in the kingdom. But of course they don't. You know why? Because their hearts are hardened. Just like Pharaoh. So Pharaoh saw this and it didn't convince him. They're seeing it and it doesn't, doesn't convince them. It's an amazing parallel. Their hearts are hardened. So there's more, and we're going to get to that next week, Lord willing, but I want that to sit with you for a week. That even when there's evidence, even when there's supernatural power, even when it's clear and irrefutable, if your heart is hard, if your heart is hard, you're not going to believe. Unless God works in you, Right? See, that's the key. God needs to be involved. You need to be born again. You need the Holy Spirit to change your heart, to regenerate you, to illumine your mind. If God is not active in you, you have no hope. But there is good hope. There's a lot of hope. The hope is what this little event teaches those of us who believe. If you're, if you're willing to see that here's a man who was able to cast out demons. Why? Because the kingdom of God has come upon us. And that kingdom of God came in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we need to believe in him. We need to accept him. He is from God. We know that because we've seen through Luke all the things he can do, and he has just another case. And yet there's so many people that no matter what they see, no matter what evidence they have, they choose to reject it. And what we can do for them is we can pray. We can pray to a God who is powerful to interject into their lives. A God who is able to let them see, to soften their hearts, to regenerate their souls, to illumine their minds so that they can come to the knowledge of the truth. That's one application. The other one is you need to be humble and thankful that you believe because it wasn't your own doing. By grace you have been saved through faith. That is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast, Paul said. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. That's what this is teaching us. We would have these hard hearts too. It doesn't matter if the finger of God was able to do a miracle right in front of us. We wouldn't register that if it weren't for God and his power. 
there's still one problem that's unresolved in this text. Yes, the man's no longer possessed. That's amazing. That's marvelous. Yes, the man's no longer mute. What a relief. But remember the third problem with his condition? He's a lost man. So what happens now that the demon's out? Is he automatically saved? Come back next week and I'll tell you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this text and the reminder that there's really nothing we can do without you and your goodness and your grace. And so we give you all the glory for the fact that we believe in you. And for those who don't, Lord, we pray to you with, with boldness, with courage, with audacity that you would save them, knowing that you can melt a human heart, that you can unveil an eye that is blind to you, that you can soften a heart that is hard to you. And so we pray these things in the name of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. Amen. Okay, well, we have a few minutes for uh, Q&A. So if you have any questions about this or about anything in, in general, let me know. Any questions? Didn't you have one from last week that I said ask this week? Yeah. But anyway, while you're thinking about that, I saw a hand up there. Logan. Well, I've answered before, this is in 2 Corinthians 11, you're saying? Uh, 1 Corinthians 11. I've answered before what um, angels, because of the angels. So let, let, me, let, let me repeat the question. 1 Corinthians 11, um, Paul says that a woman should have head coverings as a sign of submission. Is that referring to an, a physical head covering or her hair? Um, and secondly, he says that the reason is because of the angels. And I've answered that before. And do you remember what I said? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know what because of the angels means. Um, I don't know. I, I think, I, well, let me start with that one because because of the angels, I, I, I think what he means is that angels look and observe what's happening on earth and in our churches and it's confusing to them when they see a Christian marriage that's trying to obscure the lines that God has drawn, which they saw very clearly drawn for Adam and Eve and throughout human history, um, when those lines are blurred because we're trying to blend in with the culture, we're, we're thinking about blending in with the culture that we can see and with human beings. What we should really be thinking about is what heaven thinks of all of this and that, this would, that angels would be confused. And I think that angels are pretty confused today with all the transgender stuff that's happening. You know, an angel walks in a room and sees how everyone's dressed and what everyone's hair and, and pe the people don't even know what gender they are. Now the angels are supposed to know. The angels are used to clear-cut people being where God told them to be, doing what God told them to do. And so I think part of Paul's argument is um, don't, don't side with your culture. Think of, think of the angels. Think of what the heavenly realm thinks of what you're doing. So that's my take on that. But I don't actually know what he means by because of the angels. He also says in chapter 6, don't take people to court because we're going to judge angels, as you know. I'm like, I didn't know that. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. So Paul knew more than we did. Um, 
As, as far as the head covering itself, um, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not when ladies wear doilies to church on their head, like in a lot of churches, you know. But not that there's anything wrong with that. It's a sign of submission the way Jewish men wear yarmulkes, which is just a little um, cloth thing that they wear on their head as a sign of submission. It's very symbolic. In the Corinthian church, a head covering would have been a veil. And so uh, you've got to remember in their culture, especially a woman's hair was always up. And in a lot of cultures, even today, especially in the Middle East, this is true. When a woman lets her hair down, it's a sign of her sexuality. It's a, you know, when a woman's hair is, is down, it's because she's in the bedroom with her husband. Um, and so if she's walking around town and she suddenly lets out of her braids and her, you know, takes off her head covering and her hair's down, she's signaling she's, she's ready for action. So that's what the prostitutes would do, right? Um, in, in most parts of the world. Now in Corinth, what the prostitutes would do, the temple prostitutes, if you ever go to Corinth, you can see the, the temple up on the mountain. The whole city's built around this mountain with the temple. And these prostitutes, what we just know from, from history, I mean, the, the verb to Corinthianize meant to use a prostitute. So this was well known in history that these women would come down and they had shaven heads. And so now let's say they get saved, they get into the church, they need to repent of all of that aberrant sexuality. And part of the repentance is that they need to let their external appearance line up with their spiritual state. So the application I would draw for us is that we as Christians, men and women, need to think about our physical appearance in such a way that we are lining it up with whatever our spiritual state is. So depending on your culture and where you go, that's going to look a little bit different. I can tell you in Africa, women don't have women in the in the tribal cultures, like in, in Zulu women, they don't have long flowing hair. I mean it, they have you know short hair, they keep it cropped or they shave it off. And I wouldn't have a problem with that in a church setting because in that culture that's that's not a sign of rebellion, it's not a sign of androgyny, it's not a sign of sexuality or anything, it's just, it's a, it's just a hygienic thing in their cultures, right? In our culture, it's a little different. Um, when a woman shaves her head in, in Western culture, there's not always, but sometimes it's a sign of um, misandry or, um, but, you know, hatred of men or feminism or independence. And those types of statements just have no place in a marriage in the church. Does that make sense? Do you want to follow up on that, anyone? Okay. Uh, yes, William.
Um, okay, so just to repeat the question, so William's asking about the, the uh, concept. Right, that when man was made in God's image, um, there's, a, there's a teaching out there that talks about multiple gods, um, Elohim. L let me just, I don't know if I can restate your question properly, but let me just give you the answer. So um, the Hebrew word Elohim is a, is a plural word. It's just a, anything in Hebrew that ends in im um, is, is a plural way of saying things. So um, if, it's, if it's masculine, it's feminine, it ends in ot. Um, let me think of an example, like like a kibbutz. The, the, today, if you, a kibbutz is a farm in Israel. Um, if you have two kibbutz, it's called a kibbutzim. So it's just a plural. So the word for God is a plural word. It's an interesting thing that God, when he reveals himself as God, it, there's a plurality encapsulated even in the term. And when he says, let us make man in our image, he's using plural pronouns there. So that's a, a hint at what would later on be fleshed out through revelation as the trinity um, at the time i think the jews just understood that there was something pluralistic about god um, and that word elohim also referred to other heavenly beings whether they were uh, fictional heavenly or myth mythological heavenly beings like the gods of the nations could also be called elohim um, and then even angels uh, heavenly beings could also be called elohim so it, it, the word had a wider semantic domain than just referring to God or Yahweh. Um, but we know the rest of the revelation of God did use words that only meant God or Yahweh, um, referring just to him. So whenever you see Elohim, you have to look in the context, which is it talking about? And it's, we do the same in English because God and God, uh, you know, the God of this world, don't bow down to a stone God. In your mind, you're instantly putting those with little g's, even though I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, you know, um, Allah is not a real God. Little g, you know, it's what you just keep doing. So, but then when I say we're here today in the house of God to worship God, you're immediately putting those in capitals. So it's just the context will tell you which one it means. So the, I wouldn't look too deeply into the word Elohim to, to make a statement about monotheism or anything at that stage. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's the best I can do. There was, a, there was another question. Okay. I have one if no one else has one, because we got one more minute. Any other questions? Yes. A little random little one. We'll take it. Okay, so the question is in James 1, verse 1, James addresses his letter to the 12 tribes who are in the, the dispersion. Um, so I, whenever he, the New Testament talks about the 12 tribes, it's talking about the nation of Israel as an ethnicity. So that's what he's talking about. He's like, this is a letter written to my Jewish brothers and sisters who have been spread abroad in the dispersion because of the, um, the scattering of persecution. So I, that doesn't mean that James is an epistle that doesn't apply to Christians because it's written to Jews, because of course the Jews he's writing to are believing Jews, uh, Christian Jews, Messianic Jews, what we would call them. So everything in the book of James still applies to us. But yeah, that's what he's saying. Now, let me just comment on the little, you said there, because it's, uh, 
No, 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 I know, but, but you, you said, like, uh, you're, in your question, you mentioned the word dispensational, so I'm just going to use that. That's not part of your question, but gives me something to talk about for a minute. Um, so I just want to, to clarify, because I've been watching some YouTube videos that people have been sending me recently in that, and I, people that talk about dispensationalism, often they're talking about a system that no longer exists, but still holds its old name. The system that now exists has the same name, and so sometimes we're talking right past each other. So let me just tell you what it used to mean and what it does mean. Dispensationalism used to mean that there were seven distinct um, time periods in history, each one with its own... Um, yeah, uh, there are certain points that each one has, who it was written to, and the method of salvation, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and what that, this was written about by people like Schofield, Ryrie, those kind of names might be familiar to you. Um, it was kind of a newish idea, came from Darby, and so people were fleshing it out and like confused about it, and they did the best that they can, but what ultimately happened is that that group of people started saying things like, there's a way for Jews to be saved, and there's a way for Christians to be saved, and they're different. So fair enough, that happened just a few decade, decades ago. But since then, lots of people have been studying that in depth, and some people have just completely rejected that as, well, that's ridiculous. And other people have said, well, what part of what they're saying is wrong, and what part of what they're saying is right? And now we have what a new system, which we would call progressive dispensationalism, which is what I hold to, um, which doesn't believe that, precisely. So, so let me just tell you in a very... Short nutshell, what it does, the essence of progressive dispensationalism is simply this, that we can, okay, it's a very complicated topic. I'll get to the essence in a moment. A little bit of background. God dispenses his grace in different ways in history. That's clear because that's why you can eat a pork sandwich, but people under the Mosaic Covenant couldn't, but Abraham could because he wasn't in the Mosaic Covenant. So we just know that at different times in history, there were different laws that kind of kicked in right? Before Abraham, you didn't have to be circumcised. After Abraham, you did. Um, until Moses, you did. And there were all these dietary laws and clothing laws and other laws. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled those laws. And the Jews didn't know what to do about it, but they eventually got used to it. And now we're in the church age where we don't, we don't do the Mosaic laws. Okay. So that's kind of what dispensationalism is teaching. It's like that, that there's these there's different ways things happened in different parts of history, and so we have to look at which way we're in at the moment. That's why we don't have to try to apply the laws of Moses to us. But the essence of dispensationalism is this. God dealt with Israel. He dealt with humanity through Israel as a nation from the time of Abraham till the time of Jesus. But during that time, he made lots of prophecies about them that have never been fulfilled. Now he's dealing with the world through the church, don't be a nation. We are the nation. We are the new Israel that goes out into the world, right? But all of these prophecies are still left dangling. So dispensationalism teaches that in the millennial kingdom, that's when they all get fulfilled. That's the essence of dispensationalism, that there must be a time in the future where all of the prophecies that haven't been fulfilled yet do get fulfilled, literally. The only other way that, not the only other way, but the main other way that people try to answer that is by saying those prophecies were fulfilled in a very spiritual, metaphorical, non-literal kind of way in the church. 
And I think that's the shortest anyone's ever explained dispensationalism. So if you didn't understand, it's not your fault. It's mine. But we're done for tonight. <laughs> Thank you.